Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. The prison guard shut the iron door behind me. Hey, good morning, y'all. Hey, check this out. Listen to this. Let me get a drink of coffee first. Okay, so it it's 8.09 a.m. Here we go. Listen to this. I guess they don't want to sing this morning. Come on, girls, sing for me. Sing. Come on, let me hear you sing. How about some of that old crying holy in two-part harmony? Come on, girls. They're looking at me like I've lost my mind. All right. Come on, girls. Just warming up. <laughs> They're just staring at me like, what's wrong with him? All right. Come on, girls. Sing for me. Sing for me. Sing some of that old Blue Moon of Kentucky. <laughs> this will get them going. Rattle that feed bag. Come on, sing for me. Maybell, you sound so good this morning. Come on, Lulu. <laughs> All right, I, I guess I'll just feed them. They don't feel like singing this morning. All right, going in the barn here to get some hay. Hopefully, I'll be done with the hay feeding here soon. This place is greening up. It's the grass is coming back. Everything's blooming. All right, girls. Lulu and Mother Maybell. There you go. All right. Enjoy your your that lovely hay. Listen to him. Eat that. <laughs> These two, they crack me up. Okay, well, I had to do my chores because I've told you before that all I have to do to get them to sing is to hit record. It didn't exactly work this time. But. All right, let me pause this thing and go back into the fabulous Grass Talk Radio studio, and I'll be right back. Crying holy unto the Lord. Crying holy unto the Lord. If I could, I surely would stand on the rock, stand on the rock where Moses stood. Sinners run, Sinners run and hide your face. Sinners run, Sinners run and hide your face. 
Go run into the rock and hide your face. Rock right out. Rock right out. No hiding place. Crying hold. Crying holy unto the Lord. Crying hold. Crying holy unto the Lord. If I could, I surely would stand on the rock. Stand on the rock where Moses stood. Howdy, howdy, folks, and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio. You know, I'm going to be honest with you. The last few weeks, I have not really been all that interested in bluegrass. Not that I have really changed any my opinions about bluegrass or anything like that. I think it's a combination of two things. I think it was uh, coming up on the one-year anniversary of lockdown, social distancing, etc., etc., etc. I think, you know, let's just put it this way. This has been the longest two weeks of my life. And, uh, you know, I've been dealing with it. You're all dealing with it, and uh, each in their own way. And I think it just really hit me hard when I realized it's been a year. I thought about sending a bill to Anthony Fauci, um, you know, <laughs> Dr. Fauci, and put up big block letters at the top, invoice, just like you used to type up invoices back in the day. Invoice, quantity one, item, year of my life stolen, uh, unit price, I don't know, I put a million dollars, but that's probably, I, I certainly, I don't, I don't think I'm worth a million dollars a year. <coughs> uh, then, uh, <laughs> Total, one million. Make check payable to Bradley Laird. Thank you. And mail it off to him. I just got kind of in a funk over all this stuff. But the good thing around here, around the old Bluegrass headquarters, is you don't have too much time to uh, sit around and be in a funk because there's always something going on. And there's been, a, there's been plenty going on around here <clears throat> unrelated to Bluegrass. Well, there's been a little bluegrass stuff too. I'll talk. I'll talk about that. And I've got one point that I want to bring up if I can keep my thoughts together and remember to to tell you my my bluegrass tip of the day type of thing. But uh, the first thing I want to talk about is the fact that spring has sprung. Now we've been fooled before. I have uh, probably three times out of the last ten years had the fig trees completely leafed out and then get hit with a hard frost, you know, in late spring and all the leaves burned off and the tree has to start all over. Same thing with the teacup magnolias and any other sensitive, eager spring plant. But uh, I don't know what the weather's like in your part of the world, wherever you may be, but I will just report that here, in Sumter County, Georgia, the trees are blooming. Some things have already bloomed and gone on, like uh, daffodils, what I call ditch lilies. They've already bloomed. Those That's long gone. That was a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the uh, dogwoods are, the flowers are growing, and they're just about to mature. Uh, the uh, forsythia is, is blooming. The pear trees have already bloomed. Crab apple has bloomed, come and gone. Uh, well, actually, I got one crab apple that is still looking pretty good. 
and I thought the thing was dead. Last year, I almost cut it down because it didn't. It had no leaves on it the entire year, and this spring, it bloomed. And call me weird, but maybe I think these are signs of hope. You know, I, last year at about this time, the pine pollen has in the cedar pollen and all that. Everything has a coating of yellow dust on it from the pine pollen that is in full force right now. And I remember last year when all this stuff started happening and I posted a couple of photographs on my Patreon page over at Bradley Laird, no, at patreon.com slash Bradley Laird. Just try to encourage people to get through this two weeks. You know, we'll all get through it. Don't worry. And, you know, if you're feeling a little sniffly or you got itchy eyes and a sore throat and you know, a little cough or something. It's probably the pollen. And I took a bunch of pictures of all the, you know, the outpouring of life because it was this exact same time last year. And uh, I'm like, you just think back the year before and the year before and the year before, probably it's the pollen, you know. Uh, but anyway, apparently today it's not the pollen. It's, it's something else. But I'm not going to get into all that because, as I've said, that's for my other podcast, which I may do one day. Um, <laughs> anyway, it's kind of hard to keep your mind right sometimes, and I'm sure you uh, can identify with that. So I've uh, been busy in the garden because it is that time. And uh, just, do you know, what I have nothing else on my plate and like no gigs, no, you know, nothing like that. Um, just go spade dirt in the garden, you know, spade till I got to tell you about my rototiller. I had a gas powered rototiller that belonged to my father years ago and just a little like four horsepower Briggs and Stratton, or, you know, it was always a Royal pain to try to get that thing to run each season. And uh, I finally gave up and I, I took the engine off of it. I gave it to a friend of mine. I was like, if you can make this engine run, you can have it. And I just kept, you know, the rest of it, the belt drive and the handle and the, the tines and all, I had all that. And I thought, well, I can get another engine. And uh, one day I thought, what if I could put an electric motor on there? So I took, a three-quarter horse electric motor off of my lathe, which I rarely ever use the lathe. And I had this motor. I thought I'll just test it. And I rigged up a mount and mounted the electric motor on there. And that thing is great. I don't understand how you can have, it was a four or five horsepower gas engine that took you two days to get running. And uh, it was loud and smoky and just I put that electric motor on there. You just plug it in and brrr, go to work. The thing works great. So for the last three years, I, I do my garden tilling with a long extension cord and an electric motor on the, on the old uh, rototiller. It works beautifully. And uh, anyway, thought I'd just suggest that to you in case you happen to have an old rototiller sitting around that you can't get to crank and run. Um, anyway, so I've been doing that and I got to tell you, right here we are in, uh, three quarters of the way through March or thereabouts. And my potatoes are in the white potatoes. That's the Kennebec 
white potatoes. I planted them about a month ago and they're already up about six or eight inches high. You can see those pretty green rows. It's beautiful. And I planted a whole bunch of garlic and red onions and yellow onions and bunching onions. So all that got planted a month ago and it's all up growing. The, the garlic is probably six or eight inches tall and just growing like crazy and even weathered a few uh, light frosts. And then the rest of the garden, I'm just working the soil and turning it and burning trash from last year, corn stalks and stuff like that. Trying to get it ready for when the true spring planting comes and it's, it's coming quickly. Anyway, so I've been messing around in the garden. Also been setting out some of my chestnut trees and giving them away. I've been giving away. I, you always grow too many seedlings, you know? Like right now I have uh, tomatoes and butternut squash and lettuce and uh, what else? Uh, sweet potatoes. All these little plants that I've been nursing. I take them in at night and I put them out in the daytime and I water them and I always fool around, you know. And when you get done, you always have way too many. I mean, <laughs> you know, you don't need that many tomato plants unless you're a tomato farm. So I end up giving them away to people, <clears throat> which I guess is is cool. Um, anyway, uh, if you were around here close and needed a tomato plant or a chestnut tree, you know, all you got to do is come see me. Anyway, I've been setting out some chestnut trees, which chestnuts are great because you will be picking nuts if with, with luck. And if the deer doesn't eat the tree itself, they will actually eat the tree when it's a little seedling like that. They'll just chew on it and eat the whole thing. Uh, if you can protect it, you know, until it's taller than a, than a deer can reach, which will be three years, two to three years, it'll, it'll be that tall and it will be producing chestnuts that quickly. It's amazing. I'm just shocked because the seedlings I am growing that I'm setting out right now came from nuts that I picked off of a tree that I planted three years ago. And I've got a bunch of them in the fridge too. Anyway, if you want something that will get up and running fast, think chestnuts. And uh, again, talk to John Teat, uh, the mandolin player with the pluck tones. Speaking of the pluck tones, the pluck tones did not perform as a band in 2020. Not once. We had two gigs, but we didn't have the whole band there. So it wasn't really the pluck tones. So, you know. Again, as that anniversary came around, it was really bumming me out. I, and it dawned on me uh, just last week that I hadn't even seen our guitar player, not laid eyes on our guitar player. The guy lives, you know, six miles from me. We're in a small town. I haven't even laid eyes on this guy in over a year. So I called him up and I told him that. He came out to the house. Stop by. I see that as a glimmer of hope. And uh, he was um, talking about he's getting ready to plow up his garden and stuff. And I gave him a two-bottom plow that I had, a three-point hitch two-bottom plow. And uh, we loaded it on the back of his truck. I can't remember why else he came out here. It came for something. I don't remember. Anyway, he probably just felt sorry for me. Sometimes 
once in a blue moon somebody will come by. And I'll tell you what, my, my biggest problem with this whole thing has just been lack of human contact, you know, because social distancing and masks uh, just don't cut it. I'm sorry. I'm not, uh, I'm not into all that. I mean, you know, if you are, that's fine. But, uh, you know, I'm sorry. I'm old normal. <clears throat> just call me old normal. So I've been, over the past year, I've been reading a lot of books. I read, uh, reread some things that I have, uh, you know, read in my youth or read years ago. Had a lot of time on my hands. I've been you know, just burying my nose in books, you know, sitting out under the pecan tree. And, uh, which, by the way, they, they don't leaf out until much later. The oak trees and the maple trees are already putting out leaves. And you know what they say. How do you know when it's time to plant corn? When the oak leaves are the size of a mouse's ear. So just bear that in mind. Keep an eye on your oak tree. Anyway, been reading a lot of books. I'm not going to give you Brad's book review today. Although, um, that, would, that would make an interesting thing. I've often thought that you can learn a lot about a person if you know the names of the last 10 books that they read. If they've ever even read a book, you could learn a lot about a person that way. You know, just tell me the last 10 books you've read and uh, you know, I'll, I'll know what you're interested in and what you're curious about and you know, that kind of thing or what you just wish to be distracted by. I mean, some books are just purely for entertainment and some are for information. Like, I'll give you an example. Over the last um, few days, and, and this idea goes back 15 or 20 years, I got the wild idea of growing mushrooms. You know, another one of those things like, uh, I wonder if I could grow mushrooms type of thing. And I was working for a pizza outfit, a franchise pizza place called Mellow Mushroom, which was um, based in Atlanta. And they were really into like, we make our own dough and it's organic this and all natural, kind of hippy dippy kind of vibe to the, the outfit. And I was there in the two person marketing department and I had this idea. I wonder if you could grow mushrooms and then you could make that claim. We grow our own mushrooms or even, you know, you might grow them at the main uh, plant, uh, but you could have little, mushroom growing displays and stuff inside the store. Cause I mean, it's called mellow mushroom. Why not grow some mushrooms in the windowsill or whatever? Of course, you know, you probably have to grow them in the basement in the dark. Anyway, going way back, I was interested in this and I started researching and I grew, uh, some shiitake mushrooms way back. This is back around 2000, 99, 2000. And, and, you know, I, bought a bunch of books about mushroom taxonomy and uh, growing medicinal mushrooms and all this kind of stuff. And I fooled around growing mushrooms for uh, about a year. I never could sell them on the idea. And frankly, it was a little too complex. I didn't think, you know, it was something that, you know, certainly not on the individual store location that they would probably want to do, you know. Anyway, learned a lot about it, and I kind of got re-interested in it, and I'll tell you why. This is another reason why I haven't done a podcast in a couple of weeks. 
uh, not only just sort of like, I don't know, lack of interest or hard to get excited, hard to come on here and say, Hey, you need to, you need to learn how you need to go to a jam. You need to, you need to go to a festival and all that stuff. And nobody's doing it. So just kind of, you know, been in a funk. But aside from that, and aside from the gardening and all the usual things that have, have to go on around here, feeding critters and, and, uh, hanging out with Jackson and my wife and, you know, cooking and, you know, all the stuff you have to do, do your laundry, you know, things like that. Well, in the front of our house, our house is an old, old house. Some estimate is probably that it was probably built around 1900. That's a guess. We don't really know. Certainly the, the old part of the house, and it's just an old country house. And the, uh, the studs in the walls in the front part of the house are, which was the original house, are peeled pine logs. They're just poles. They're like four, four inch in diameter pine poles peeled. That's the studs. And, and the, uh, the foundational beams and, and floor joists and all that are all hand hewn beams. You have to crawl under the house to witness this fine craftsmanship or go in the attic. I discovered it by climbing around in the attic and realizing that the rafters, and it's basically a log cabin, you know, but, but when you put siding on the outside and you paint it and hang shutters and stuff, you think it's just a traditional stick built two by four and two by six and two by eight type house. And it's not at all. The back part of the house is because uh, there was an, add-on done to the back anyway it's a very old house and very common throughout the country throughout probably throughout the world to uh, when you build a house plant some trees around it because you know you want that shade this house was built before air conditioning it was built before electrification i mean there was electricity in 1900 but it wasn't common in the rural south certainly and probably the rural anywhere so, you know, this, this, there was no, you know, AC power coming to the house. There was probably no telephone. And I know at the, initially when the house was built, there was no indoor plumbing. Even. You had a well and an outhouse because I've found both locations um, in, you know, just rambling around here. The old well is actually under the addition that was tacked onto the back of the house back around 1995 and then crawling around under there I realized there's a well under the house anyway they just filled it in I think they used it as a junk pile and filled it up with bricks and stuff you know and kind of halfway covered it over but anyway it's a really old house and so at that time very common to plant trees around the house to get shade in the summertime when you need the shade so you'd plant a, you know an oak tree something like that to shade the house in the summer. But then when the leaves come off in the winter, you want the sunshine. So this gigantic, massive, magnificent oak tree, it was planted about 15 feet off the corner of the house. And I measured this thing and it was 52 inches in diameter. 
was a big tree. And I just always assumed the tree was probably planted about the same time the house was built. Big, massive. I, I, I don't know how tall, probably 90 feet tall, probably. Maybe, maybe a little taller. Big old gigantic laurel oak. Well, anyway, when we moved here 10 years ago, the tree looked really good. There were a few dead branches. Occasionally a limb would fall down. And, you know, I began to see mushrooms growing on the, uh, around the base, you know, around the roots and where it spreads out at the, at the bottom. See these, you know, shelf mushrooms, you know, like poking out of the, I'm like, this tree is rotten. It's rotting. And then, you know, more branches begin to die and certain parts of the tree look perfectly healthy and the branches extended out, you know, 30 feet on each side. Probably a single branch of this tree might be 14 inches in diameter and 30 feet long. Probably weighs a thousand pounds or more. One branch, you know, massive tree. And, uh, but anyway, one side of the tree really began to die off. And, you know, been watching it and, you know, some branches fell, hit the roof, you know, knocked some shingles loose. And, uh, just like, oh man, if this, if that branch there falls, it's going to hit the house. So we began to think about, should we have it trimmed or should we take it down? And I didn't want, I did not want to cut this tree down. Not, not me personally. I did not even want it cut down. I wanted it to live forever. But you know what? Nothing lives forever. Even a tree. And I assumed it was probably hollow. Just, you know, and we get a big storm, like one of those hurricanes that came through here. And the thing could just topple over on the house. And I thought, well, it'd be more expensive to rebuild the house presuming you live, if it doesn't fall on you in bed during the middle of the night, it would probably be less expensive to cut the tree down than to rebuild the front of the house. So we're just contemplating this as the tree gradually got worse and worse over a couple of years. And then, boom, one night, this gigantic chunk of a rotten log fell from the top of that tree. It's probably 12, 14 inches in diameter. And it was a chunk of a big, long, dead branch that was probably 12 feet long. And it's, it's rotten and wet and heavy. Well, it fell and it bounced off some lower branches and sort of tumbled and smashed into one of the columns on our front porch, the corner column. And it smashed, one end of it smashed into the column and knocked the column over about 12 inches to one side off its base, you know. So the column's all crooked. Luckily, the porch, you know, the roof and ceiling of the porch didn't really drop because there are, I think, six columns there. Anyway, okay, it's time. You know, so <laughs> I won't go through about the, the long drawn out ordeal of finding someone capable of cutting a tree like that down. But eventually we did. Great guy. I got to give him a plug. If you need a tree cut down around here, call Herman. 
Herman can do it. So I've been kind of sidetracked with that. So anyway, the big tree came down, cut it down. And uh, when they, they topped it and started dropping branches and all this stuff. And I've been spending a lot of time just cleaning this area up. Our, that side yard around that tree looks like, you know, a landing at a, at a logging camp, you know, running their little track vehicle around. Plus they had like a 60 foot bucket truck that they got up in there and it was quite an ordeal. And then it would rain and then they would have to wait till it dried out. This, this whole thing's taken about three weeks to accomplish. And that's partly why I haven't done a podcast in the last three weeks. Anyway, when they got the final section of the trunk and cut it off, they had to, you know, cut it from both sides and because their chainsaws couldn't reach through that thing. And that log laid there for about a week because it started raining again. And I measured that log. You know, I went forestry school, so I get out my old forestry books and I, I scaled that log. And by the way, it was not hollow. Only down at the base of it was it hollow. The other end of that 10-foot long log was solid. You could see the streaks of, you know, um, fungal infection, you know, under the bark, uh, working its way to the dark coloration of it. It was coming. It was rotten, but it wasn't rotten to the core, as they say. So it was probably a little stronger than I thought it would be. But anyway, thing came down. I scaled that log. And I can't remember the numbers now, but I think the you measure the short, uh, small end of the log was 46 inches in diameter. So that was 10 feet up in the air. And uh, it was 10 feet long. I calculate the board feet, you know, or the cubic feet. I think it was, you know, roughly 1,000, uh, 1,051 board feet in terms of wood volume. I worked out how many cubic feet. That's something like 87 cubic feet of oak. And multiplied by what is the weight of a cubic foot of oak at 20% moisture, which this thing was at 100% moisture. This log was literally dripping water out of its cut end for a week, just, just oozing water. It's just full of water. So the weight that I calculated was for you know 20% humidity. In other words, you already dried the wood out. Well, this, my estimate, estimation, of the weight of this log was 5,000 pounds. Pretty, pretty, very, pretty close to that. It's amazing. <laughs> Which explains why when they took their little bobcat loader with their little claw in the front and tried to pick it up, uh, it the machine was pretty powerful little machine. It wasn't small, but uh, it bent the cylinders on the machine rather than lift the log. And that took another week because they had to they, had a, they drove that thing over to the barn. I'm getting out tools and WD-40 and, and sledgehammers and punches and all this stuff. And they took that cylinder, the one that bent. looked like, you know, if Superman broke out of jail, how he would just bend the bars of the jail and step through, you know. That's what that cylinder looked like, you know. Oh, man. It was just one thing after another. I'm sure they're glad to be finished and gone. And I am, too. Did a great job though, so remember, call Herman if you need a tree taken care of. <laughs> anyway, so been messing around with that, but all these logs, all those branches that were healthy, 
way up in the top of the tree, these long branches. Well, they cut it all up. And I started thinking, ah, I could take those logs and inoculate them with shiitake spawn and grow me some mushrooms. I'm going to set me up a little mushroom farm with, I'm going to pick a few really select good looking logs and grow me some shiitake mushrooms. So I went online to a fungi perfecti, which you got to love this. This outfit, Fungi Perfecti, has, they own fungi.com. That's, that's great. It'd be like having bluegrass.com. You know? So just go to fungi or fungi, depending on how you'd like to say it, .com, and you can order yourself some mushroom spawn. Which I'm not going to explain how you do that. I'll talk about it later because that's going to be part of the thing here this year is growing some shiitake mushrooms on those oak logs, which, by the way, is the traditional way to grow shiitakes in Japan and China. So, got that going on. Let's see, what else is happening? Um, okay, let me, I'll try to talk a little bit about bluegrass today. Um, so, two things. First thing is, I had a little picking out here. You know, I've had a couple of little pickings out here over the summer. If I didn't, I, I'm sure I would have completely lost my mind, you know? Because no gigs, no jams, no the weekly thing, and it, just nothing, nothing. Oh, it's driving me crazy, you know? Because clearly I'm addicted to bluegrass. And I like it. I, I like the, you know, I've told you I like the music. And I love performing. And I love playing. But I love hanging out and, you know, I love hanging out, talking to people, telling jokes, you know, swapping stories. And I love that aspect of it. The social aspect of it to me is, especially at this point in my life, is more important than the music. I've done the music. I've been on stage. You know, I've, I've you know, stood at the Moonshadow opening for the Tony Rice unit, you know, and put on a nice sport coat for that gig, you know. I've done all that. And uh, so that's not as important to me. You know, back then it was really cool to get to, you know, hang out and talk to Sam Bush, you know, back and be in the same, you know, green room back there. You know, that was really cool. But, uh, you know, been there, done that. And now I just, I like hanging out, talking and, you know, shooting a breeze and, you know, you got to have that social contact. But uh, so I've had a couple little jams here and I, a couple of good ones too. A couple of friends of mine talked about it before. A couple of friends of mine from Atlanta came down, old, you know, former members of Pony Express, Mike and Buddy. They came down here. They've been down here twice. Last time they came down here, it was going to be a really warm weekend. This was in February, but it was like nighttime temperatures of 65. You know, it was unusually warm there for a week. And I looked at the weather and I'm like, okay, let's have a picking. So anyway, I only had me and three other people came. That was it. So it was, uh, met all the requirements of, you know, uh, reduced capacity of the whatever. Anyway, we had a good time picking. And so I'm getting ready to set them up with a bunk, you know, for the night. And they're like, nah, we'll just sleep here in the barn, you know. I, you know, Mike, he's like, my back hurts. So I can just sleep here on the concrete. I'm like, what? Are you nuts? So anyway, they, I fixed them up these mattresses that came out of my old pop-up camper. 
And they had their sleeping bags and pillows and all this stuff. And they just slept in the barn. <laughs> it was, I mean, I like people like that. I like people like that. Speaking of books, um, I just uh, reread Company H. For any of you history or Civil War buffs, that's a good book. It's not a history of the Civil War. It's a diary of a, uh, a private in the Confederate Army named Sam Watkins. And probably if you've ever watched those Civil War documentaries, the Ken Burns stuff, you would hear lots of quotes from Sam Watkins. You know, they would read the quote and then say the name. You know, Mary Chestnut. People like Stuff like that. Hey, if I'm not mistaken, I think John Hartford read some of those quotes. Not, and I don't think he did Sam Watkins, but I think John Hartford's voice is on the, on the narration track of that. Uh, you have to look that up and see if I'm correct about that. Anyway, I reread Company H, and the first time I read it, I thought, well, this is really interesting to hear from, from just a lowly private's perspective, you know, of what he just said. It's just, this is what I saw. This is what I know. This is, and I don't know, I don't know the big battle plans of the, you know, the generals with the chicken guts on their sleeve. You know, I don't know that. I just know we did this and then we did this. And then, you know, it's fascinating. And uh, one of the things he said is he got a, a, a leave, a pass to go on, on like basically he had a few days off and hopped on a train and went to uh, Alabama somewhere. And uh, just wandered around town. He was he was wounded, so he got a pass, and uh, he he had the opportunity to spend one night in a house in a bed, and he couldn't do it. It's like it was the most uncomfortable night because he he said I'd spent the last three years sleeping on the ground. You know, he just preferred it. You know, and there were a lot of uh, I hear there were a lot of. Of soldiers and veterans after the Civil War, who you know had a lot of problems, you know, re-entering society. You might say, especially in the South, where you know you came home to a burnout, uh, destroyed economy, and perhaps your farm and home and what you know, and you're occupied. But a lot of them, you know, because they had habitually slept on the ground, they would just you know prefer to sleep on the floor or sleep on the porch. You know, it's just you know, anyway, reread that, and that inspired me to go digging around for some uh, Yankee soldier diaries that were similar, and I read a couple of those. Found them down here at the America's Public Library, and I can't quote the titles of them because I turned them back in, and I can't remember. But it was interesting to see, you know, from both sides, um, you know, just the little guy's view of what, you know, what transpired. And the personal story, it's just fascinating to me. Uh, what else have I been doing? Oh, yeah. So talking about bluegrass and picking, I'm, I'm in a pretty good mood right now because I'm going to have a little picking tonight. You know, there was a, used to go every Tuesday night to this Pete's place, Pat's place. Hi, Pat, if you're listening. He's a um, patron of the show, by the way, over there, patreon.com slash Bradley Laird. And I appreciate all you people who do that, or or let me get my little plug in, or any of you who have purchased or are thinking about purchasing any of my instructional material over at bradleylaird.com. It's all still there. 
and it's 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 super great and it'll it will elevate your playing to new levels of greatness but it also feeds the dog and the donkeys and etc <laughs> and i do appreciate you i i do every little bit helps you know a dollar's a dollar you know five dollars is five dollars as martha said just in case any of your pony express guys are listening um Anyway, where was I going? Oh, so having a picking. I'm going to have a little picking because, I, I again, this one-year anniversary hit me kind of hard and kind of got me very pensive and very um, moody. <laughs> and I, it dawned on me, well, we haven't had the Tuesday night gang picking at the pizza place in over a year. And most of those guys, I haven't even seen them. And a couple of them have you know, come out here to a couple of my little jams, but some of those guys I haven't even seen in a year. And, uh, I said, well, you know, Pat's got legal restrictions and, you know, responsibilities. It's a, it's a place of business licensed by the government and you got to follow the rules and you got to do this and that. And, you know, he just doesn't feel like he could do it right now. And I understand that completely. I probably wouldn't do it if I had, you know, if I was in the same situation. So I don't fault, you know, I'm not saying, hey, Pat, how come you're not having the jam? Come on, man. Come on, man. <laughs> I'm not doing that, too, because I understand. I'm a small business owner, and I used to have a, you know, brick and mortar where, you know, had an open and close sign. And, you know, when I had my print shop in those days, I know what it's like. You know, I know about you got to get the fire marshal to approve and you got to have your, you know, all this stuff. I get it. But I, it just dawned on me that we haven't picked, I haven't picked with those guys in 12 months. This is insane. So that was yesterday. And I thought, well, I'm just going to send out a little text message to those fellows who used to come there, you know, every Tuesday night. And I said, hey, you know, since Pat can't have the thing over at the pizza place, how about we just have it here? The weather's going to be good tomorrow, It's going to, which is today. It's going to be beautiful weather, certainly warm and not anticipating any rain. We really don't have to worry about rain falling on you because we're inside the big barn. But um, it gets so loud if it's raining. You can't hear yourself think out there. So, but anyway, no rain, nice warm weather. I think we're going to have a high of, I don't know, 75 tomorrow or today. I don't know, something like that. So I just sent out a text. Hey, since we can't do it over there at Pat's place, how about come over here? Same time, same, same people, everything. And, and I said, and, and if you're, if you want the pizza, go through Pat's drive-through because he had to build a drive drive-up operation in what was the eight-car parking lot is now the drive-through with some cones and enter here sign and stuff. And you know, just swing by, pick up your pizza, and then come over. You know, so we're gonna have a little picking tonight. And I wish you were around here because I would invite you to come too. Because I'll tell you what, my mind is just not right if I don't do a little picking. Anyway, so that, that covers that. And then I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about um, something that occurred yesterday. A, uh, a guy who, had, who I met down here in town 
as mantle player, he he was he was a beginner, and he's he's getting becoming a, a better player. I met the guy. Name is Dixon. Hey Dixon, if you're listening. Um, he calls me up. He says, uh, or he, I think we were doing this with email, but same diff. He says, uh, hey, you know, could you take a look at my mantle? And it's it just seems like I've got a there's like a buzz or a rattle or something's going on. It just doesn't sound right when I play up around the fifth in the seventh fret mostly on the g string and the d string and he, he's got a nice mandolin it's a it's an eastman i don't recall which what the model number is just a good solid little mandolin i think it sounds good it sounds very good anyway he says you know would you mind taking a look at it I'm like yeah okay well when do you want to come this is last week he said well how about monday i come over sometime on monday i said name me time Okay, so he says one o'clock. So I'm, you know, I'm pretty excited. I'm actually going to have a human to talk to, you know, instead of the chickens and the donkeys and stuff. And talking to a tree. You know, I think there's value in all that. Don't, don't get me wrong, you know. I think you should talk to your dog. But he don't really talk back. He licks and he jumps all over you and, you know, and he loves you. But, uh, you know, you can't have a conversation, not a real conversation. So you need other human beings for that. So I was pretty excited, you know. Hey, Dixon's going to come over. What could be more fun than, you know, spend an hour or two, you know, shooting the breeze about everything and mandolins and have a look at this mandolin and see if I could help him out, you know. So he comes over. And uh, we sit down right where I'm sitting right now, uh, you know, and just start, you know, shooting the breeze. Shooting the breeze. Well, after about 45 minutes, we finally... Oh yeah, remembered what it was all about. Get that, get that mail on out of the case. Let me look at it. And um, and this is no criticism, Dixon. If you're listening, this is not a criticism because this is common. This is common. But the first thing I noticed, I said, "Well, just sit there and play it for me. Just play a little bit." So he's trying to. I said, "Make it do it. Let me just listen. Let me put my ear down there and you make it do it and let me hear it." So he's playing, you know, notes here and there and stuff. Not really a song or anything. Just just trying to make it do the thing that's been bothering him. The sound he's been hearing, you know, that he doesn't like and something's wrong. And uh, I said, well, first thing, I mean, tune that thing. Oh, and I... I Forgive me, Dixon, I'm, I'm going to maul this. You know, in one day, I've already forgotten precisely what we said and exactly what transpired. But essentially, I said, well, first thing, tune the thing, you know, because your G-strings are out, you know. And uh, we get to talking about tuning. And I, I just want to make this important point. And this is directed primarily toward mandolin players. And that is, in my humble opinion, that the two unison strings for each note, G, D, A, E, those two should be as close to perfectly in tune with each other as you can get them. If they are out of tune with each other, one of them is wrong. Possibly both of them are wrong in terms of pitch. So like, 
let's just say you're tuning your A string, and theoretically your both A strings should be tuned to A440. That's our goal. Probably if you divide small enough and you, if you had the most accurate measuring instrument in the world capable of measuring to one billionth of a cent, probably we're never actually perfectly at 440. But we're darn close. Close enough. You know, I mean, and I've talked about this in the episodes that I've done about tuning, that the displays of, of the various electronic tuning devices vary. Some only show if you're five cents off. The, you got to be five cents off for the display needle to move over or the light, the next light to light up, which means two and a half cents. Because at the two and a half cent point, if you go beyond that, then it pops over to five. In other words, it's a, it's a um, crunchy display, not super precise display. And there are other types of tuners, such as strobe tuners and things like that, which you can visually see much, much, much smaller deviations from perfectly in tune. You know, the Con strobe tuner or the Sonic Research tuner that I love so much. Or, the, you know, they're better tuners in terms of their ability to display smaller discrepancies in pitch. But here's the thing. If you tune your A, and let's say you're just that teeny tiniest bit flat. And we're talking about one single A string. And you're just microscopically flat or sharp. And then you compare it to your E string. And it should produce this nice interval of a fifth. A, E, a fifth. And they should sound good together. Okay? But because of the distance in terms of pitch from A up to E, you've gone up to the fifth note of the scale. They're, they're spaced apart. It's more difficult to compare those pitches and say, does that fifth sound good? In other words, you could have your A dead on, and it sounds great. And your A is just a tiniest bit flat, and it still sounds great. you got to get off a little bit before you can detect it. And I'm speaking to you as a guy who made uh, his day job was tuning pianos. This guy, Brad Laird, that's what I would do in the daytime, tune pianos for people and charge them money for it, you know. Mostly I tune the pianos for free. It's like drummers. I tune the pianos for free, but I charge them a hundred bucks for sitting on that piano bench for two hours. Man, it gets your back. It's like drummers, you know, they, they get paid to haul drums. They don't get paid to play. But I'm speaking to you as somebody who claims to know a little something about the science of tuning. And what I'm saying is being on absolutely the perfect pitch, 440 for that A, is not as important. It is important. I'm not saying it's not important. But... You can be a tad off. It's still okay. But what is not okay is if your two A strings do not agree. 
because a note, a, a string tuned, let's say two A strings, and one is dead on, perfect, and the other one is slightly sharp, they will beat against each other and make a horrible sound. And if you clamp on your little snark and put it on there and plunk the one string, it says, perfect. And then you plunk the other string and it says, perfect. But it's not perfect. It ain't perfect. Listen to the thing. This is what I'm saying. Use your ears. Tune one string to the tuner. And when it says you're in tune, okay, close enough. Then don't look at that tuner when you tune the other string. Use your ears. And if it sounds grating or harsh or doesn't, if it doesn't sound solid, it should sound like one string if you get them perfectly together. So I was telling, you know, talking to uh, Dixon about this. I'm like, I said, watch, let me tune this thing. Let me just let me match those two G's. He's like, I can't really, I can't really hear what you're, you know. So we'll just take some practice. You know, you've got to learn to listen to the beats, not listen to the pitch. Because, and the beat is just this fluctuating, it's a fluctuation of amplitude. Because when you've got two strings vibrating and they're not tuned to this exact same frequency, they will periodically enhance each other and periodically cancel each other. But when they're tuned perfectly together, the peaks and valleys of the waveforms will superimpose and the entire volume will come up because they, these two waveforms are aligned. Every time you have a high point in the wave cycle, both of them are right together. So it's a very even pulsing rather than two, two waves fighting each other. And you only have to be off a slight amount to begin to hear a slow beat, just a rolling, a wah, wah, wah sound. And that is the interaction of the waveforms of the two different strings, which are not in tune. Then the farther you separate the pitches of the two strings, the faster the beating gets until it becomes so fast that it actually sounds like the two strings are actually two different notes. There, there comes a point where you can't perceive the speed of the beating. So then, you know, if, if I had one string on pitch and the other string I'm pushing sharp, I'm going to hear it speed up, speed up, speed up, that beating. It takes practice to hear beats. And that that is... And it, I think it's it's not so much that you have to try to hear the beat, it's that you have to try to ignore the sound of the pitch. You know, it's like putting that out of your mind and just listening for that pulsing. And if you experiment around with some strings, you mandolin players, uh, you know, try to make it beat so that you can hear it. I mean, try to get those 
two strings out of whack enough that you hear wah, 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 and you can hear it. And once you dial in on that pulsing, beating sound, then bring them closer to pitch, and you should hear it slowing down, slowing down, slowing down. And as you get real close, you're just going to hear this rolling thing once per second, once every two seconds. And when you've got it dialed in together, you can't hear it at all. You don't hear any beats. That is called zero beat or zero beating. Um, so just play around with that. Try to get better at hearing that. And uh, the, by the way, it is the exact same thing that happens. Why you can, you hear an interval, you hear a fifth or a fourth or a sixth or a third or a minor third. What you perceive in your brain it's hearing the two notes, but it's also hearing the interaction between them and their beating. And if that beating correlates with what a fifth should sound like, then you say, well, that's, a, that's an in-tune fifth. And fifths, I talked about this in podcast before, fifths beat at a different rate than fourths. And thirds beat differently. Thirds and sixths, very similar in speed. And the speed of the beating doubles with each octave you go up, and it is halved by each octave you go down. So it's, it's fascinating. I think you should spend a little time trying to learn how to zero beat your strings. Far more important that your strings are together than that they be dead on the theoretical frequency for a G node. You know, if you're just a little off, at least have them off together, you know, let them both be wrong by the exact same amount because you get a beautiful tone. You might be a hair flat, but you're getting great tone, okay? And your instrument will have a tad more volume. It just seems more ringing and solid, you know? So think about playing with that. Now, the other thing we got talking about um, was, you know, should you tune up into, you know, from below or should you come down towards? So, you know, I was, I was saying, okay, tune one of the strings just and assume, okay, the upper string, upper G string is perfect. Just let's just assume it's perfect. We're not going to touch it. Now tune the other one and make it match. Okay. And we're handing the thing back and forth and stuff. And then, so I'm demonstrating, okay, these two strings are zero beat. They are together. Listen to them. I just play it real softly. I don't hear any beating. He says, well, yeah, that sounds good. I said, now watch this. And I take the pick and I just whack, 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 just wildly strum on the thing. And then I said, now that I've abused this mandolin, I play those two strings again and they're out again. This is what happens to so many people. First of all, the first thing that happens to many poor tuners of mandolins is that they don't get their unisons in tune because they're looking at the tuner too much and they're not listening. Then they haven't practiced and learned how to zero beat those, those two strings, get them in truly unison. That's problem one. Problem two is they don't equalize the tension along the length of the string and they think 
they are in tune, and in fact they are in tune, but as soon as they begin to vigorously play their instrument and fretting it, you know, pushing the string down, stretches the string, and they equalize the tension, and then the darn thing goes out of tune. But they've already tuned, and they don't listen anyway, so they just continue. I'm not talking about you, Dixon. I'm talking about everybody else. I'm not talking about Dixon. I'm talking about every other beginner and intermediate mantle player. They tune. They trust the machine. They don't listen. They don't perceive the beats of the unisons at all, or barely. Or maybe they do, but they don't know what it is, you know. And then they fail to equalize the tension on the string. And then they start playing, and pretty soon their mandolin's hardly out of tune, and they sound bad. And, you know, it's bad enough to be technically bad at playing, you know, like uh, I'm not, you know, like I'm not so great at fretting clean notes or, you know, playing the string the way, you know, like the technical aspects of playing the instrument is difficult enough. And that those technical difficulties are what makes beginners sound like beginners, you know, because he can't play so good, you know, he's not so good, you know. He, you know, he's not cleanly fretting the notes and his, his pick is hitting extraneous strings and he's, you know, you know, this is what we try to overcome as we move from beginner to intermediate to advanced to master. We're trying to get technically better at playing the instrument. But you're not doing yourself a favor if your instrument is out of tune, you know, it's like, you know, come on. That it's easier to learn how to tune than it is to learn how to play great. So you could take a person who plays poorly and their instrument is out of tune, slightly out of tune, and they're just going to sound even worse. They already sound bad, but they're really going to sound bad on an out of tune instrument. I remember reading this story one time, Bill Monroe, he's, it might've been at Bean Blossom or something. He's hanging around where they're serving breakfast or something. And he comes in there to get his coffee and, He's standing there, you know, putting the eight teaspoons of sugar in his cup of coffee and stirring it. And there's some guy sitting over at, the, at a table playing a mandolin, you know, kind of plunking away on a mandolin. And Bill is just, just he's listening to this guy, and the guy's just playing, 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 playing. And Bill's just, you know, stirring the sugar into his coffee, and he, he walks over, and he says, let me see that thing. And he he tunes it and hands it back to him. So there, it was driving him crazy that this guy was sitting over there playing away on an out of tune mandolin. And I know Bill's been guilty of playing somewhat out of tune at times too. We all have, you know, because you get, you know, into the heat of the moment and you're into, oh, you know, sometimes it just doesn't matter, you know, but sometimes it can grate on you. But what I'm saying is you can improve your sound by improving your technique and ability and knowledge and skill on the instrument, but you can also improve it by simply getting the thing in tune and getting it where it'll stay in tune better, you know? Here, a lot of people say, oh yeah, well, it's the weather, you know, it's these hot lights and it's this and it's that, and, you know, it, it couldn't be the fact that you don't know what you're doing. You know, it couldn't be that. It, maybe it just has never been explained to them. But I will give you a suggestion, and this applies to all stringed instruments, 
not just mantle it. When I'm talking about, okay, you've tuned it now, and you plunk, 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 and the tuner says you're in tune or whatever, and you go, I'm in tune. And then five minutes later, when you stop caring if you're in tune, you're out of tune. And you're just out of tune. You know, it's like, and people who can hear it are just driven mad by this. Well, how can you fix that? Or what's a, what's a good technique for tuning a string? First thing I believe, I believe come up. Go deliberately low and work your way up to the pitch. You don't have to go a long way low, but lower. And the reason I suggest that is partly because of the way the geared tuners work. But I also suggest it in that it becomes a habit to always do that. And every string is always treated the same way. Every note, everything you ever tune, begin by making it slightly low, even if you have to turn it down and get it low and then bring it up because you're just learning one way to do it. Probably if you went from above and came down, you would get really good of hearing that too. But for me, I, I just think you should select. If, if, if you think you're out of tune, just, just go ahead and lower it a little bit. Not a whole step, not a half step, maybe not even a quarter step, but a little bit to where your tuner is pointing south, as they say, you know, flat. And then just slowly bring her up until it's there. Now, what I suggest you do, though, is as you're bringing it up, play it pretty vigorously. Play it pretty hard. You know, every time you turn the tuning peg, when you, you're about to tune the turning, tur turn the tuning peg. So play the string good and hard and then turn it. So play hard, turn, play, turn in super small increments. Don't go wild because you would just go over it and then you have to go back under it and come back, you know, go easy in terms of, you know, how much you're turning the peg. You know, I'd rather you come up and it takes you 15 times to finally land where you think you're in tune and the tuner says you're in tune. Then you make one big move and you went too far because you might not realize you went too far and you just keep going higher and higher and then, uh, you, you know, you lose your mind that way. Work slowly towards the P. It's like climbing a mountain. Just take little steps, doom, 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 upwards until you're at the top. And play the thing good and solid. So you, you hit the string good and you turn it a little bit and then you play it kind of softly and see well, what does it sound like or what does the tuner say. In other words, tune hard, listen soft. Okay? And then when you are satisfied, well on that thing, strum it wildly. I mean hard. Hit it hard. I don't abuse the thing. Don't break the strings. But play it 50% harder than you normally play. Just, you're not trying to play. You're simply trying to get the thing vibrating. And here's why. From the tuning peg to the nut is one segment of the string. And then from the nut to the bridge is another segment. And then from the bridge to the tailpiece is the third segment. When you're turning that peg, because of the friction at the nut and at the bridge, you're, in, 
you're first going to increase tension between the peg and the, and the nut. That'll go up, and then there'll be some slippage at the nut, which will cause the speaking length of the string, the main part of the string, to come up. And then with luck, and there's more friction at the bridge, then you'll actually introduce some additional tension in the segment between the tailpiece and the bridge. You want them all equalized. If you just concentrate only on the sound of the string itself, the, the speaking length of the string, you may actually stop tuning and have a little extra tension between the tuning peg and the nut, and then the perfect amount of tension in the speaking length, and then not enough tension between the bridge and the tailpiece. And it, you play it softly, and it's perfectly in tune, and you move on. And then five minutes later, or one good stroke later, and it's out of tune. Because when you send all them vibrations going back and forth on that string, that will induce the string to equalize over those two friction points. And typically when it does that, it'll drop in pitch. Usually. Could go up, depending upon how you did it, or whether you're coming down to the string or going up. If you're going up and you, you get it in tune, it typically it's going to drop back flat again a little bit normally, but it depends on which direction you were approaching the note from. But the idea is to equalize the tensions in those three segments, which you can't hear. You don't hear those segments. And then the only way you can do that is by vigorously playing, strumming, and then rechecking. And if it has gone out of tune, tune it again. Because I see so many people who tune, don't listen, believe the tuner, particularly mandolins. But it could apply to guitar, too. I mean, your intervals may not be dead on. It may not sound that great because you're just looking at the lights instead of listening and learning what a third sounds like on a guitar. Okay, so you, you can work towards that. But... If your string segments are not equalized and then you go to jamming and say, well, in your mind, I already tuned, I'm in tune. Well, you'll soon be out of tune. But if you can learn to test and retest and test and retest, take a little time with your tuning is what I'm saying. Take as long as it takes. If it takes you 15 minutes to tune your instrument, show up 15 minutes early, you know. Show up a half an hour early. Give it 15 minutes to acclimate to the room, you know, or the environment. Just, you know, set it down, open the case, go have a beer. Come back in 15 minutes, tune the thing. And if it takes you 15 minutes, so be it. Because if you do what I'm suggesting and you manage to... What you're trying to do is knock it out of tune. You tune it and then see if you can knock it out of tune by playing hard. By playing some notes, bending some strings, doing all the things you're about to do over the next couple of hours. Go ahead and do some of that, and then go back and check it again. Because it's probably gone out of tune. Not all the strings will. Some will, some won't. Some you manage to get good and solid, and you manage to equalize the tension on the string, and those notes will stay there. Well, eventually, you can get them all to stay there. If you learn how to do this, tune vigorously play, check. If it needs changing, change it. Vigorously play, 
check it again. And then the final step of this is, remember this about tuning. And I think I talked about this in past episodes, but hey, it's worth repeating. Because that's what Dixon and I were talking about yesterday. And that is this. When you raise the pitch of one string on your instrument, you have microscopically lowered the pitch of all the other strings. Because as you increase the tension on a string, it presses down on the bridge and squeezes the instrument, which lowers the pitch of the other strings ever so slightly. So this is, this is why, let's say you're a fiddle player and you break a string. This is true on any instrument, banjo, guitar, whatever. If, let's say, a string breaks, you have your instrument perfectly in tune. Don't do this, but this is how you could prove this point. Let's say, tune your banjo perfectly in tune by the tuner, by whatever method. Get it in tune. Maybe just have it laying there on the bench, on the workbench. And then walk up to put on your safety goggles and face shield and suit of armor and get a pair of wire cutters and walk up there and just take that, oh, take your first string and just chomp it in half. Break the string. Now, don't touch anything. Get your tuner out again and check the pitch of the other four remaining strings and you will find that they are all sharp. Because when the string broke, you took some of the downforce off. And so the instrument sprung back up and it raised the pitch of all the other strings. Now, get you out a new string, put it back on, tune it up to pitch, and go check the other strings. And you'll find that they're right back perfectly in tune. Because it's all about the total tension. Now, I will, you know, admit little small amounts, like if you're tuning your bass fiddle and it's, it's in tune, but your D string is a hair flat and you bring the D string up, probably that tiny bit of change on one string is not going to be detectable in the other strings. But if you move it a whole lot, it perhaps will be detectable. So that's another tip, is that if you do change strings, you can uh, sort of maintain the downforce, on, or even the uh, tension on the neck is maintained if you just change the strings one at a time rather than taking them all off. You know, Just change one at a time. Change it, tune it, move to the next one. Change it, tune it, move it, and so on. So that's one way to kind of maintain the design tension, you might say. All right. Anyway, I just encourage you to, uh, since you don't have anything else to do right now, maybe spend some time experimenting with tuning and really learn how to really tune. Because tuning is not twisting the pegs until the green light comes on on your gizmo. That's not tuning. That approximates the art of tuning. And it's helpful for someone who, I mean, an absolute beginner, it's very helpful. Or it's, they're certainly helpful in noisy environments. You know, I've tuned my bass on stage visually with a strobe tuner while a guy is playing electric guitar and a drummer is two feet from my right ear and I've got an earplug in. You know, sometimes they're very, very helpful, especially the clip-ons and clamp-ons and all that in noisy environments. I give you that. Sometimes you just have to do that. 
but whenever possible, actually try to listen to your instrument, you know, and work towards, you know, as you, before you say, okay, I'm done fooling around tuning, make sure that you vigorously play the string and deliberately try to put it through the paces. You don't have to play it for a long time. Just a couple of good whacks on the string will generally cause the tension in those three segments to equalize. And then you're going to be good. You know, once you'll have to tune it again and then vigorously play it and then check it. If you do that and then you vigorously play the notes or just, just brush and strum the strings and play a few chop chords or, you know, play a couple of runs and, you know, kind of exercise the string a little bit, simulating what you're about to do for the next couple of hours. And then you check it and it's in tune. Guess what? That instrument's going to stay in tune all night long. Because how many times have you seen people at a jam session just seem like they're constantly fiddling with their tuning? Fiddle, 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 fiddle. It's because they're never getting it in tune to begin with. And then they're not um, equalizing. You know, once it's equalized, you'd be amazed. It's hard to knock them out of tune when, when once you get that solid equalization. And it, by the way, it does help to lubricate the nut slots with graphite. And same goes for the bridge. You can, you know, the old thing is, you know, number two pencil. Actually, I think it's preferable to use a um, powdered graphite on a toothpick. Just dip the, you know, a, a round, hard wooden toothpick and just rub graphite into that toothpick. Just, just keep burnishing it into that wood. And then loosen one string, move it slightly to the side, and then just rub that little stick of graphited, little tiny hardwood pointed stick in that slot. And the reason for that is there are some additives in pencil lead of fillers, clay fillers. I think they use clay. So it's using 100% pure graphite is probably slicker than having a little bit of clay in there. Anyway, so I would suggest you lubricate your slots. It doesn't do a whole lot of, it. you know, it helps because as you turn the peg, it may, soft playing may cause the string tension to equalize in those three segments. Got it? So lubrication helps. Um, but sometimes, you know, you can't, you still need to play it hard because soft playing still may not equalize it, even if you got a little bit of graphite in the slot. And I've heard people talk about using powdered Teflon too. Um, I, I use powdered Teflon for a couple of little lubrication jobs inside pianos, but I just, the re only reason I use it is because it's white and it's, if you get it all over the place, it doesn't look so bad on those maple parts or, you know, you don't want to be squirting a bunch of that grayish black graphite all inside somebody's nice Steinway, you know, but there's certain applications where graphite is better. I think like in the trap work on, on, an, on a piano, you know, down to foot pedals and all those springs and stuff, you know, it's really good there, especially if you kind of burnish it in and rub it in real good. Like just take a piece of paper after you squirt a little powdered, I'm talking about pianos here, but if you kind of rub it in real good and, and, you know, burnish it, 
it, I think it makes it stick better to the, whatever you put it on, like, you know, a flat piece of steel or, you know, or wood, you know, you can rub it into the wood. That's what you would do on the bridges of pianos. If, if you ever, to prove the point of how important this string equalization is, well, there are three segments on a typical handheld stringed instrument, but on a piano, there are five or more segments. So, and to successfully tune a piano and have it stay in tune for long periods of time, you got to have the same string equalization that, you know, that I'm talking about here. You, I don't want to say you pound on the piano, but you want to play that key hard to attempt to equalize those tensions. And some of these little segments are only an inch long and this, the wires are massively stiff and if you're not getting equalization on a, tuning a piano, the thing will be out of tune soon. As soon as some, you know, especially like a gospel music player and just start pounding on a piano, you know, or, you know, give it the Jerry Lee Lewis treatment, he's going to knock that thing out of tune unless you, as the tuner, successfully equalize the tension and as the strings pass over the bridge, there are actually two contact points on a piano where there's only one on your guitar saddle or your dobro saddles or your fiddle. There are two on a piano and there are two, two little steel pins. And that section between the two steel pins that are about an inch apart is burnished with rubbed in graphite. You put the powder on there or use a stick of pure graphite and you rub it like a crayon. And then you take a dowel stick and you rub and rub and rub and rub and rub and rub and rub and, rub and try to drive that. Um, uh, well, you try to burnish that graphite and that makes it super, super slick. So when you do the, the bridge, if you do the bridge slots, really try to rub, 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 rub right in that slot to really slick up. Maybe what you're doing is orienting the crystal structure of the uh, graphite molecules by doing that. I don't know, but it makes it slicker. So, you know, don't be burnishing it with a, an abrasive tool. You know, you don't necessarily want to be inadvertently cutting your bridge slots and nut slots too deep by too much rubbing with a rough object. That's why, you know, a nice little slick, the point of a super hard little toothpick is good. All right. I have blabbed on e long enough. I mean, we've talked mushrooms, old trees, picking sessions. You know, I, th I thought I was going to come out here and just like, just to let you know, I'm still alive, make a little 15 minute update up episode, you know, and, uh, tell you, I'll see you next week. And I get to talking and it's just like me and Dixon here. We get to talking and pretty soon two hours have gone by and we're talking and fooling around with the mandolin and, you know, talking about the world and, you know, everything. And it's, it's, you know, I've, I've told you before that at least half of the benefit I get out of producing the podcast, maybe it's more like three quarters of the benefit is uh, therapy. So I get my therapy session by being able to express myself and knowing that at least somebody is out there listening. By the way, little milestone, I'm getting very, very close to the 100,000 downloads count. So help me out. Let's get there today. I just, if you don't want to buy anything, cool. Maybe you're broke. 
You don't feel like you already got all my books and videos? Fine. You know, maybe you just lost your job or, you know, whatever. You're eating cat food, you know, whatever. But one thing you can do, and it'll get us there quicker, and it'll help me, and, it, and it'll help you too because it'll make you feel good because you're helping old Brad. Take some of the podcasts that you've enjoyed the most that I have recorded. Copy a link, post it on Facebook, post it on Twitter, call up your friend, talk to him for five minutes and go, hey, you got to go listen to this thing. Because yeah, I'm telling you what, I'm not bragging, but some of this stuff is pretty good. Some of it's just entertainment and, you know, you know, something to listen to. I, I, I know that. You know, it's hard to measure the value of that. But uh, some of this stuff's pretty good. So, and I'm not ashamed of that at all. And are you? I mean, do you listen in secret? And you would never tell anybody that you listen to Grass Talk Radio? Tell your friends. Become a pest. Go, you know, every time you see them mention Grass Talk Radio, you know, go have a Grass Talk Radio t-shirt made. Hey, that's a good idea. I should make Grass Talk Radio t-shirts, hats, mugs, mouse pads. Maybe I'll do that. If you promise you buy one, I'll I'll go to the trouble of making them. I got I got some canned pre -de some designs that I could do. Yeah. I, I have a, a a wonderful drawing that I did of Bill Monroe, and it would make an excellent coffee mug. Maybe I'll do that. I'm looking at it right now. It's up there. Anyway, y'all have a great week. I wish you were here tonight because we're gonna have a little picket. Y'all take care. Talk to you in the next episode. Lord, I ain't, Lord, I ain't no stranger now. No stranger now. Lord, I ain't, Lord, I ain't no stranger now. No stranger now. I've been introduced to the Father and the Son, and I ain't. Oh Lord, I ain't no stranger now. Crying holy, holy unto the Lord. Crying holy, holy unto the Lord. If I could, I surely would stand on the rock. Stand on the rock where, where Moses stood. Where Moses stood.